Blog Talk Radio. The Four Persons, Inc. is a federally registered and licensed 501c3 charity. Any use of any of our content without our permission is prohibited by law. Our purpose is evangelization, education, and social action. Please go to our website at thefourpersons.com or our blog site at thefourpersons.net to make your tax-deductible donation by credit or debit card. You can also send a check to The Four Persons, Inc., P.O. Box 11214, Manassas, Virginia, 20113. To contact us, send us an email at email at thefourpersons.com. Welcome to the Catholic Ken Apologetics Show on the Four Persons Network. This is our weekly Friday morning show with Catholic apologist Ken Litchfield. To call into the show today, the number is 515-602-9655. That number again is 515-602-9655. And now, let's welcome our host Ken Litchfield. Good morning, Four Persons Blog Talk Radio Show fans. This is the Catholic Ken Apologetics Show with me, your host, Ken Litchfield. Got a great show planned for you today. I will be discussing the Brothers and Sisters of the Lord and the Perpetual Virginity of Mary. If you have any questions on this topic, you can feel free to call in at 515 602 9655. If you'd like a copy of today's show notes, you can send me an email at catholicken at thefourpersons.com. That's catholic with a K at the number four persons.com. I'm also available to come speak at your parish on this or many other topics. You can contact me at kenlitchfield61 at gmail.com or look me up on Facebook. So, let's get started. The Bible says that Jesus had brothers and sisters, yet the Catholic Church teaches that Mary is a perpetual virgin. How do we reconcile this apparent contradiction? The disagreement arises over the biblical meaning of the terms brethren, as in brother or sister. There are about 10 instances in the New Testament where brothers and sisters of the Lord are mentioned. They're in Matthew chapter 12, verse 46, chapter 13, verse 40, 55, Gospel of Mark chapter 3, verse 31 through 34, and in chapter 6, verse 3, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, 19 verses 19 and 20, and John's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 12, and chapter 7, verse 3, and verse 5 and 10. Also in the book of Acts, chapter number 1, verse 14, and in 1 Corinthians, chapter 9, verse 5. The Greek term brother 
Adolphos has a wide meaning in the Bible. It is not restricted to the literal meaning of a full brother or half-brother. The same goes for the Greek word for sister, Adelphae, and the plural form of brothers, Adelphoi. In the Old Testament, the word brother had a wide range of meaning and could refer to any male relative from whom you are not descended. Lot is the son of Abraham, Abraham's brother, Haran, as shown in Genesis chapter 11, verse 26 and 28. Yet Abraham refers to Lot as his brother in Genesis 14, verse 14, even though we know that Lot is his nephew. Similarly, Jacob is called the brother of his uncle, Laban, in Genesis or Laban, in Genesis chapter 29, verse 15. Kish and Eleazar were the sons of Male. Kish had sons of his own, but Eleazar had no sons, only daughters, who married their brethren, the sons of Kish. These brethren's brethren were literally their cousins as shown in First Chronicles chapter 23, verses 21 through 22. The terms brothers, brother, and sister did not refer only to close relatives. Sometimes they meant kinsmen, as shown in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 7, Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 7, Jeremiah, chapter 34, verse 9, as in the reference to the 42 brethren of King Azariah in Second Kings, chapter 10, verses 13 and 14. The Hebrew and Aramaic languages used a special version of the word brother that had the meaning of cousin, or they could use the circumlocution of such as son of my uncle, but circumlocutions are clumsy, so the Jews often used brother. It's important to know that, you know, when they were writing down the Old Testament and the New Testament, having to write down the son of my uncle or the sister of my, of my, of the, you know, the daughter of my uncle or the daughter of my aunt, things like that, took a lot more letters, and since everything had to be handwritten and hand-copied, the general term of brother or sister was a lot shorter and a lot easier to use and copy. The New Testament writers wrote in Greek and could have used the Greek words, but they wrote in Greek with a Jewish-Aramaic accent. So they used the Aramaic brother when they could have used the Greek anepsios, which is the word for cousin. Or, no, which is the Greek word for brother. Since the New Testament writers quoted from the Septuagint Greek translation of the Old Testament, they used adelphos, has the same Greek meaning 
of the English word brother, as in a male from the same two parents. Through the apostolic tradition, people understood the New Testament writers, who the New Testament writers were referring to when they used the term brother or sister. The same usage was employed by the writers in the New Testament and passed on into English translations of the Bible. To determine what brethren or brother or sister means in any one verse, we have to look at the context. When we do that, we see that there is inseparable problems arise if we assume that Mary had children other than Jesus. Now, I have a chart here that I'll show to the Facebook Live audience. Um, and this is available if you get my show notes. And it shows that Joseph and Mary had one child, Jesus. But Mary had a cousin who is the other Mary. And she is referred to in John chapter 19, verse 25. The other Mary is mentioned also in Matthew chapter 27, verses 55 and 56. And this other Mary would have had a husband named Alphaeus in Aramaic or Cleophas. Cleopas in Greek, and he's mentioned in John chapter 10, verse 3. And this is the same husband of the other Mary that is mentioned in John chapter 19 and 25. Now, this other Mary and Cleopas, they had children who are the cousins of Jesus but they are referred to as brothers in Matthew chapter 13, 53 and 55, and Mark chapter 6, verse 3. One brother is named James. He's mentioned in Luke chapter 6, verse 15 through 16, in Matthew chapter 13, verses 55 and 56. He's mentioned in Acts chapter 1, verse 13, and he's the bishop of Jerusalem, in Acts chapter 15, verse 13, and that Mark refers to in Jack, Act, chapter 15, verse 40. They also, Mary and Cleopas also have a, another son named Joseph. He's mentioned in Matthew chapter 13, verses 55 and 56, and Mark 15, Verse 40, they also have another son named Simon. He's mentioned in, in 16, Matthew chapter 13, verses 55 and 56, and Acts chapter 1, verse 13. And Mary and Cleopas also have another son named Jude. He's mentioned in Luke chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. He's the gospel. He's the writer of the Epistle of Jude, mentioned in chapter 1, verse 1. And he's also mentioned in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 13. 
Now, there's another Mary that's mentioned in the Gospel, and she's the wife of Zebedee. Mary, the wife of Zebedee, is mentioned in Matthew chapter 27, verses 55 and 56, and Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 and 28. Her husband is mentioned, her husband Zebedee, is mentioned in Matthew chapter 10, verse 3, Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 and 28, and Mark chapter 1, verse 19, Mark chapter 3, verse 17, and Mark chapter 10, verse 35. Now the sons of Zebedee are James and John. James, the son of Zebedee and the other Mary, dies in Acts chapter 12, verse 2. And John, the brother of James and the other son of the other Mary and Zebedee, is the Apostle John, who receives the Virgin Mary in, as his mother in John chapter 19, verses 26 to 27. Some people have a question about Matthew chapter 1, verse 24 through 25, and the claim that Jesus was Mary's firstborn son, and that Joseph knew her not until Christ was born. Does St. Matthew te here teach that Mary had to have other children? No, it doesn't. Because in Exodus chapter 13, verses 1 through 2, reveals something important about the firstborn in Israel. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. The firstborn are not given the title because there was a secondborn. They were called the firstborn at birth. Hence, Jesus being referred to as firstborn in Matthew 1 does not require that there had to be more siblings after him. Now, scripture stating that Joseph knew Mary not until she brought forth her firstborn would not necessarily mean that they knew each other after she was brought forth Jesus. Until is often used in scripture as part of an idiomatic expression similar to our own usage in English. English. I may say to you, until we meet again, God bless you. Does that mean that after we meet again, God curse you? By no means. A phrase like this is used to emphasize what is being described before the until is fulfilled. It is not intended to say that anything about the future beyond that point. Here are some biblical examples that may help clarify things. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 23, and Michael the daughter of Saul, had no child until the day of her death. Does this mean that she had children after she died? Of course not. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, Paul writes, Until I come, attend to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, to teaching. 
Does this mean that Timothy should stop teaching after Paul comes? No. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25, it says, For Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Does this mean that Christ's reign will end when all the enemies have been put under his feet? By no means. Luke chapter 1, verse 33 tells us, He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his, of his kingdom there shall be no end. In recent years, some have argued that because Matthew 1.25 uses the Greek word heos ho for until, whereas the text I mentioned above from the New Testament use heos alone, that there is a difference in meaning. Heos ho, it is argued, would indicate the action of the first clause does not continue. Thus, Mary and Joseph, not having come together, would have ended after Jesus was born. The problems with this theory begin with the fact that there is no scholarship available that confirms it. In fact, the evidence proves the contrary. Heos how and heos are used interchangeably and have the same meaning. In Acts chapter 25, verse 21, should suffice to clear up the matter. But when Paul had appeared, had appealed to keep in custody for the decision of the emperor, I commanded him to be held until, and the Greek word used there is heos how, I could send him to Caesar. Does this mean that St. Paul would not be held in custody after he was sent to Caesar? Not according to the biblical record. He would be held in custody while in transit, as, in, as shown in Acts chapter 27, verse 1, and after he arrived in Rome for a time. See Acts chapter 29, verse 16. The action of the main clause did not cease with the heos hall. Some people think that the Jewish law required a marriage to be consummated to make it valid. But there is another alternative in the book of Numbers. In the book of Numbers, chapter 30, verse 3, we read, Or when a woman vows a vow to the Lord and binds herself by a pledge while within her father's house in her youth, and her father hears of her vow and of her pledge by which she has bound herself and says nothing to her, then all her vows shall stand, and every pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if her father expresses disapproval to her on the day that he hears of it, no vow of hers, no pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand, and the Lord will forgive her because her father opposed her. And if she is married to a husband while under her vows or thoughtless utterance of her lips by which she has bound herself and her husband hears of it and says nothing to her on the day that he hears of it, then her vows shall stand and her pledges by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if on the day that her husband comes to her 
to hear of it, he expresses disapproval, then he shall make a make void her vow, which was on her, and the thoughtless utterance of her lips, by which she bound herself, and the Lord will forgive her. So we have to understand the Jewish culture at the time of Jesus, and before then, uh, because the book of Numbers you know, as part of the Pentateuch going up all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. Jewish culture, a woman was in covenant with God through her husband because the sign of the covenant was circumcision. That's how a man became in covenant with God. Women not being able to receive circumcision, they could not be in covenant with God on their own. And the book of Numbers here in chapter 30 tells us that a woman who is under her father's authority can make a vow of chastity. And if her father hears about it but doesn't refute it, then she can continue to live by that vow. And when she gets married off to another man, if her husband hears of it and does not refute it, then she can continue under that vow of chastity. To understand Mary's vow of virginity, first we have to read the Proto-Evangelium or Infancy Gospel of James. This writing is not considered scripture, but was written in the second century. So it offers information close to the time of Jesus. And this is one of the earliest explanations that we still have as to why Mary was a perpetual virgin. This writing tells us that Mary's parents are Joachim and Anne. They had longed for a child for many years. When Mary was born, she was dedicated to service in the temple. When Mary came of age and started menstruating, she could no longer serve in the temple. In Jewish culture, a woman is in covenant God with God through her father or husband because women cannot be circumcised, as I mentioned earlier. Also, like all cultures up until the 1900s, Women had no rights. Mary needed a husband to protect and care for her since her parents had died. Joseph became her husband because he was a widower who was not looking for a wife to start a family with. This is according to the infancy gospel of James. Therefore, Joseph was able to maintain a, what we call a Josephite, a celibate marriage with Mary. This is why the brothers and sisters of Jesus originally were thought to possibly be Joseph's children from his first wife, or just close relatives since Middle Eastern cultures have no word for cousin and consider them all brothers and sisters. The perpetual virginity of Mary is easily shown in the Bible when Joseph and Mary lose Jesus. 
when he stays behind in the temple at Jerusalem. Joseph and Mary don't have any other children to worry about when Jesus is 12 years old. There's no record in our Bible that tells us that um, Mary and Joseph had to hand off the other kids that came along after Jesus to other relatives so they could go back and look for Jesus. They only go back to look for Jesus. That's the only child they got, and they lost him. How embarrassing. And they do go back to Jerusalem, and they eventually do find Jesus and bring him back to Nazareth, where they were living. Also, at the foot of the cross in John's Gospel, chapter 19, Jesus gives Mary to John. In Jewish culture, the care of the mother passes to the eldest son after the father dies. So after Joseph died, Jesus was responsible for taking care of his mother. Mary had no other sons, so Jesus gives her to the apostle John. In Luke chapter 1, we learn that the engaged Mary asks how that she will have a child when the angel Gabriel tells her she will have a child since she knew where babies come from but didn't have sex with a man yet. In Luke chapter 2, verses 23, it tells us, As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. And you can cross-reference that with Exodus chapter 13. In Ezekiel chapter 44, verse 2, it says, the Lord said to me, this gate shall remain shut, it shall not be opened, and no one shall shut it, enter by it, for the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered by it, therefore it shall remain shut. Mary is the gate through which Christ entered our world. No other person can enter that way. Here's a little more detail from Luke chapter 1, lends further support to Mary's perpetual virginity in the New Testament. Luke chapter 1, verse 27, says, To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Luke chapter 1, verse 34 says, And Mary said to the angel, how shall this be? I have no husband. In, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 45, it says, And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So Mary knew where babies come from, but she also knew that she had not had sex with a man. And Luke's Gospel tells us that blessed is she that is Mary, who believed what the angel Gabriel told her, that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. In John chapter 19, verse 26 through 27, it says, 
When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple there, whom he loved, he said to the woman, to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. Jewish culture at that time required the care of the mother to be passed on to the eldest son when the father dies. The care of Mary is passed on to John because Jesus had no other brothers to take care of Mary. In 200 AD, Hippolytus, Bishop of Rome, who grew up in Smyrna and learned from the from St. Irenaeus, who also learned from Polycarp, who learned from the Apostle John. Hippolytus writes that Mary was a perpetual virgin in his writing against Baron and Helix. So we have in the 100s the Proto-Evangelium of James explaining how Mary was a perpetual virgin and the St. Irenaeus who learned from Polycarp, who learned from John, also wrote about Mary being a perpetual virgin and he passed it on to Hippolytus of Rome. In 222 AD, Tertullian during the dispute with Marcion, a Gnostic, affirms that Mary is the mother of Christ because Jesus was engendered by Mary in her womb. In 248 AD, Origen wrote, James, he's referring to the infancy gospel of James, records that the brethren of Jesus were sons of Joseph by a former wife, whom he married before Mary. Now those who say now those who say so wish to preserve the honor of Mary and virginity to the end, so that body of hers which was appointed to minister to the word might not know intercourse with a man after the Holy Spirit came into her and the power from on which overshadowed her and on and I think it in harmony with reason that Jesus was the first fruit among men of the purity which consists in perpetual chastity and Mary was among women pious to ascribe to any other than to her the first fruit of virginity so Origen is saying that it is already known that Mary was a perpetual virgin and it was right and proper that Jesus being her, the first fruit of among men would come from Mary and that he would be the only fruit from Mary so that she could maintain her perpetual chastity. In the 300s, St. Epiphanius wrote, Eve was called the mother of the living. After the fall, this title was given to her. 
True it is, the whole race of man upon earth was born from Eve. But in reality, it is from Mary the life was truly born to the world, so that by giving birth to the living one, Mary became the mother of all the living. In 373 AD, St. Ephraim of Edessa wrote, Blessed Virgin, Immaculate and Pure, you are the sinless mother of your Son, the mighty Lord of the universe. You are holy and inviolate, the hope of the hopeless and sinful. We sing your praises. We praise you as full of every grace, for you bore the God-man. We all venerate you. We invoke you and implore your your aid, holy and immaculate virgin. Be our intercessor and advocate at the hour of death and judgment. You are holy in the sight of God, to whom be honor and glory and majesty and power forever. In 373 AD, St. Athanasius wrote, it becomes you in to be mindful of us as you stand near him who granted you all graces for you are the mother of God and our queen help us for the sake of the king the Lord God master who was born of you for this reason you are called full of grace but those therefore who deny the son is by nature from the father and proper to the essence deny also that he took human flesh from the ever virgin mary so we see in the in the 100s the 200s the 300s and it goes on into the 400s so we'll pick up here with what jerome wrote in 383 ad i assert that what has already been proven from the gospel that he, Victorinus, spoke of the brethren of the Lord, not as being sons of Mary, but brethren in the sense I have explained. That is to say, brethren in the point of kinship, not by nature. We believe that God was born of a virgin because we read it. We do not believe that Mary was married after she brought forth her son because we do not read it. In 386 AD, Didymus the Blind wrote, It helps us to understand the terms firstborn and only begotten. When the evangelist tells that Mary remained a virgin until she brought forth her firstborn son, as shown in Matthew chapter 1, verse 25. For neither did Mary, who is to become who is to be honored and praised above all others, marry anyone else. Nor did she ever become the mother of anyone else. But even after childbirth, she remained always and forever an immaculate virgin. In 388 AD, Ambrose of Milan, who taught St. Augustine, 
imitate her, that is, Mary, holy mothers who in her only dearly beloved son set forth so great an example of material value material virtue for neither have you sweeter children than Jesus nor did the virgin seek the consolation of being able to bear another son in 401 AD St. Augustine wrote in being born of a virgin um, whose chose to remain a virgin even before she knew who was to be born of her christ wanted to approve virginity rather than to impose it he wanted virginity to be of free choice even in the woman in whom he took upon himself and Okay, and he wanted virginity to be of free choice, even in the woman in whom he took upon himself the form of a slave. In nine, in 411 A.D., Augustine also writes, "It was not the visible sun, but its invisible Creator, who consecrated this day for us, when the Virgin Mary." fertile of womb and integral in her virginity brought him forth made visible for us by whom when he, he was invisible she too created a virgin conceiving a virgin bearing a virgin pregnant a virgin bringing forth a virgin perpetual why do you wonder at this, O oh man. In 428 AD, Augustine also wrote, heretics called anti-dichromates, there we go, are those who can contradict the perpetual virginity of Mary and affirm that after Christ was born, she was joined as one with her husband. So we see also in the early 400s, St. Augustine, one of the greatest theologians of the early Catholic Church, also writes that Mary was a perpetual virgin. In 430 AD, Cyril Cyril of Alexandria wrote, the word himself coming into the Blessed Virgin Mary herself assumed for himself his own temple from the substance of the Virgin and came forth from her a man and all that could be externally, externally discerned while interiorly he was true God. Therefore, he kept his mother a virgin even after her childbearing. There are two ancient um, accounts of how Jesus was born with Mary, without Mary losing her virginity. 
Um, and one of them is that Jesus passed through her body from her uterus to outside her body, like light shining through a window, or perhaps in the same manner in which he walked through doors and walls after his resurrection. Another perpetual virginity of Mary uh, tells us that Joseph, Mary was in labor, and Joseph went away to get a midwife. And when he came back with the midwife, he found that Mary had Jesus in her arms already. And when the midwife examined Mary, she said that Mary was still a virgin. Now, the Catholic Church does not require us to believe either of these accounts or both of these accounts, but it does show that from very the very early on in Christianity, that this was the understanding that people had about the perpetual virginity of Mary. Now, the early Protestants also understood about the perpetual virginity of Mary, and we have some quotes from them. Ehrlich Zwingli is an early reformer about the same time as Martin Luther and John Calvin, but lesser known to most Protestants. But he writes, I esteem immensely the mother of God, the ever chaste, immaculate virgin. Francis Turretin, who was a successor to Martin Luther, wrote, this is not expressly declared in scripture, but is yet piously believed with human faith from the consistent, from the consent, I'm sorry, but it is yet piously believed with human faith from the consent of the ancient church. Thus, it is probable that the womb in which our Savior received the auspices of life, whence he entered into this world as from a temple, was so consecrated and sanctified by so great a guest that she would always remain untouched by man, nor did Joseph ever cohabitate with her. Now here's a bit more information from uh, let's see Yeah, okay. So the virginity in part two, which means during the birth of Jesus, and postpartum, after his birth, are zealously defended by the church as they are callously disregarded by those who spurn her. And this was written by the Lateran Council in 649, which proclaimed, if anyone does not properly and truly confess in accord with the Holy Fathers, that the Holy Mother of God, an ever-Virgin and Immaculate Mary, in the earliest of the ages conceived by the Holy Ghost, without seed, namely, the Word of God himself, especially and truly, who was born of God the Father before all ages, and that she incorruptibly bore him, 
her virginity remaining indestructible even after his birth. Let him be condemned. So in 649, the church is already teaching that Mary was conceived without the seed of a man because it came from the Holy Ghost in order to create the word of God, Jesus himself, and that she bore him without losing her virginity. And if you don't believe it, the church condemns you. Pope Paul VI in the ordinance Cum Quadorum in 1555 condemned as depravity and iniquity the belief that the Virgin Mary did not always persist in the integrity of virginity, namely before bringing birth forth, at bringing forth, and always after bringing forth Jesus. Um, now, the this is a bit more information about Jerome, who translated the Latin Vulgate from original Hebrew and Greek texts of his time. And he wrote around 383 AD, a man named Helvetus wrote a pamphlet questioning whether Mary, the mother of Jesus, remained a virgin after his birth. Helvetius' opinion was also held by Tertullian Gerinus. These three cited the verses of the Gospels of Matthew and Mark that refer to the brothers and sisters of the Lord. So this dispute about Mary's perpetual virginity is old, but the church has always held it. It's only been those that are outside the church that have disputed it. As I mentioned, Jerome knew Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, and made the official Vulgate translation of the Bible used for more than 1,000 years as a standard text in Christianity. Jerome claimed that Joseph was only legally married to Mary and not really a husband to her. Jerome stated that the brethren of the Lord were really his cousins, not the children of Mary and Joseph. Jerome wrote his own little booklet, contrary to Helvetus, Tertullian, and Victorinus, that virginity is a better state than married. In it, he writes that Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, it says that Joseph found that Mary was with child before they came together, and that Joseph did not know Mary until she gave to her child. Jerome writes that the words knew and till in the language of Holy Scripture are capable of a double meaning. It may be referred to as sexual intercourse or knowledge of the understanding as or as for instance the boy Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem and his parents knew it not with regard to the word till this is completely refuted by the authority of the same scripture which often refers to a fixed time frequently time without limitation. In Isaiah chapter 46, verse 4, 
even to old age, I am he. Will he cease to be God when they have grown old? Of course not. Jesus also tells his apostles in Matthew 20, chapter 28, verse 20, Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the world. Well, the Lord, then after the end of the world, has come, forsake his disciples at the very time when they are at the end of the world, and seated on the 12 thrones to judge the 12 tribes of Israel? Of course not. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he says, For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. Is the Lord to reign only until his enemies begin to be under his feet, and once they are under his feet, he will cease to reign? Of course not. David writes in the fourth psalm, Behold, as the eyes of servants look unto the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maiden unto the hand of her mistress. So eyes look unto the Lord our God, for we have mercy upon us. Will the prophet then look unto the Lord until he obtained mercy, and when mercy is obtained, he will turn his eyes down to the ground? Of course not. All these verses and more refer to an existing state of being that continues into the future, instead of ending at that point in time. Jerome's um, letter against Helvetus is... uh, rather extensive. It has uh, 21 chapters, and we don't have time to read them all. But I'll mention some highlights from the letter. And if you really want to dig deep into it, I recommend you read this letter by Jerome against Helvetus. In the first part, he writes that Joseph was only putatively not really the husband of Mary. Jerome writes about this in the first of these, um, in the first section, which occupies chapters three through eight, and is based on Matthew chapter one, verses 18 through 25, and especially on the words, before they came together and knew her not until. The second proposition that Jerome refutes is that the brethren of the Lord were his cousins, not his own brethren. Jerome writes about this in chapters 9 through 17, which covers the words firstborn son, which Jerome argues are applicable not only to the eldest of several, but also to the only son. And the mention of the brothers and sisters whom Jerome asserts to have been children of Mary, the wife of Clopas, Cleophas or Clopas, depending on which translation of the name you're using, he appeals to many church writers to support his view. The third point that Jerome maintains 
is that the perpetual virginity is better than the married state. In support of this reference of virginity to marriage, Jerome argues that not only Mary, but also Joseph, also remained in the virgin state. He writes about this in chapter 19 of his writing, that through marriage may sometimes be... No, he writes that though marriage may sometimes be a holy estate, it represents great hindrances to prayer. And he writes about that in chapter 20. And the teaching of scripture is that the states of virginity and continency are more accordant with God's will than the state of marriage. And he writes about that in chapters 21 and 22. So that's all we have for today. My voice is about shot because I'm getting over a cold. So thanks for tuning in today. If you'd like a copy of today's show notes or have a follow-up question, you can send me an email at catholicken at thefourpersons.com or look me up on Facebook. If you'd like to have me come speak at your parish on this or many other topics, you can send me an email at Catholic Ken, I'm sorry, at KenLitchfield61 at gmail.com or look me up on Facebook. May God bless and guide your efforts to bring the truth of the Catholic faith to the world. Thanks for tuning in. Bye now. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.